We open the scriptures to Esther chapter 9. Last time we considered verses 1 through 19, and so we will start our reading at verse 20. We will read through the end of the book, chapter 10, verse 3. And the rest of the book will be our text. So we begin our reading at Esther 9, verse 20. And Mordecai wrote these things, and sent letters unto all the Jews that were in all the provinces of the king Ahasuerus, both nigh and far, to establish this among them, that they should keep the fourteenth day of the month Adar, and the fifteenth day of the same yearly, as the days wherein the Jews rested from their enemies, and the month which was turned unto them from sorrow to joy, and from mourning into a good day, that they should make them days of feasting and joy, and of sending portions one to another, and gifts to the poor. And the Jews undertook to do as they had begun, and as Mordecai had written unto them. Because Haman the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews, had devised against the Jews to destroy them, and had cast poor that is, the lot, to consume them and to destroy them. But when Esther came before the king, he commanded by letters that this wicked device which he devised against the Jews should return upon his own head, and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Wherefore they called these days Purim, after the name of Pur. Therefore, for all the words of this letter and of that which they had seen concerning this matter, and which had come unto them, the Jews ordained, and took upon them, and upon their seed, and upon all such as joined themselves unto them, so as it should not fail that they would keep these two days according to their writing, and according to their appointed time every year. And that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation, every family, every province, and every city, and that these days of Purim should not fail from among the Jews, nor the memorial of them perish from their seed. Then Esther the queen, the daughter of Abihail, and Mordecai the Jew, wrote with all authority to confirm this second letter of Purim. And he sent the letters unto all the Jews to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus with words of peace and truth to confirm these days of Purim in their times appointed according as Mordecai the Jew and Esther the queen had enjoined them and as they had decreed for themselves and for their seed the matters of the fastings and their cry. And the decree of Esther confirmed these matters of Purim and it was written in the book. And the king Ahasuerus laid a tribute upon the land and upon the isles of the sea. And all the acts of his power and of his might, and of the declaration of the greatness of Mordecai, whereunto the king advanced him, 
Are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was next unto King Ahasuerus, and great among the Jews, and accepted of the multitude of his brethren, seeking the wealth of his people, and speaking peace to all his seed. Here we end our reading of the scriptures. We have reached the end of the book of Esther. And the hand of the unseen king, which we have by the eyes of faith been observing throughout the recorded history of this book, the hand of the unseen king has brought everything full circle. The book began with feasting. You remember Ahasuerus' six-month banquet, an exercise in human pride, feasting in which that wicked king showed off his excellent majesty, in which feast became the occasion for the deposition of his queen, Vashti, and the unfolding of the rest of the events between chapter 1 and now the end of 9 and 10. So the book began, and now the book ends also with a feast. But feasting of a very different sort. Feasting and rejoicing in a marvelous act of deliverance that came for the Jews and came for God's people. Not a one-time feast called for by the whim of a king, but a yearly feast now, which has as its purpose celebrating deliverance worth remembering for all generations. And that's how the book of Esther ends, with a joyful feast celebrating deliverance. The rest of chapter 9 explains the institution of the Feast of Purim, which is the last and is the lasting result of the battle of the 13th of Adar where the Jews were delivered from their enemies, and their enemies were delivered into their hands. A feast called Purim, the purpose of which was to rejoice in deliverance, to remember that deliverance, to rest in that deliverance, and to give thanks for that deliverance. And what a beautiful ending it is. Because, beloved, that is the result, the lasting result. Of all of the unseen king's work for his people. For the Old Testament church. For us today. The lasting result. The outcome. The lasting aftermath of his victories for us in Jesus Christ. It's a day of feasting. That is without end. The eternal Sabbath. Joy. Rest. Peace. Thanksgiving. And that, especially, is what Purim, at the end of the book of Esther, points us to. Let's look at this feast and see what it means for us as we end our series on the book of Esther tonight. The Feast of Purim, that's our theme. The Feast of Purim, let's look first at its establishment. Secondly, at its celebration, that is how it was celebrated. And then finally, its lasting significance. 
The remainder of Esther chapter 9 describes for us the establishment of the Feast of Purim among all of the Jewish communities of the Persian Empire in the aftermath of their deliverance from their enemies. Strikingly, this Feast of Purim is a grassroots feast, you might say. It came to be from the bottom up. It grew naturally from the organic life of the Jewish communities throughout the empire. It grew up and was practiced, and then it became officially instituted. It was feasting, celebration that was spontaneous throughout the Persian Empire in response to the overthrow of Haman's plan and the Jews' deliverance from what seemed like it would be an inescapable destruction. This feast came to be practiced on two days. We note that in Esther 9 verse 17 and verse 18 which describes how the Jews throughout the provinces celebrated the first Purim on the 14th of Adar, the day after Mordecai's decree had been enacted on the 13th. But the Jews in Susa, or in Shushan, the capital, they celebrated it a day later, on the 15th, because of the one-day extension that Ahasuerus had granted to them in the capital city. Rejoicing, a feast, was the natural response of the Jews to these events, these wonderful events of deliverance that had transpired for them. And so this having happened, this rejoicing, this feasting, having naturally erupted throughout the Jewish communities in the Persian Empire, our text begins by stating, Mordecai wrote these things. He wrote these things down. That is, he recorded the events that had transpired. He summarized them all. And his summary is found in verses 24 through 25, where he wrote down how Haman the Agagite, the enemy of all Jews, had risen to power. How he had plotted his evil plot to destroy the Jews. How he had cast the lot poor to determine that lucky day for his massacre. How Esther had approached the king. And how Esther had gained the king's favor. And how through Esther, Haman was overthrown and hung upon the gallows. And Mordecai elevated and a counter-edict published. And how the Jews' enemies had gathered together and had done their best and thrown themselves at their enemies. But how they were defeated. And how the day that had been appointed for their destruction was turned to the contrary. Deliverance. It was all written down. And Mordecai wrote this down not only for the purpose of having a historical record of what had happened, but as the text indicates, he wrote this down so that it would be sent to all of the Jews throughout the entire empire in the form of a letter describing the events that had happened, the deliverance that had taken place, so as to establish this among them. The text says, that is, to establish, to cause to stand as a permanent ordinance in their communities a new feast that would be annually, every year, celebrated on the 14th and on the 15th of Adar, embracing the practice that had developed already among the Jews in the provinces as well as the Jews in Shushan. And the last empire-wide edict, as it were. The last empire-wide letter is sent. 
And how different in character this one is. Not based on the whim and folly of King Ahasuerus. Not an evil plot being sprung. Not a counter edict intended to counteract that evil plot. But a letter sent far and wide to Jews near and far. About deliverance. And what the response to this deliverance is to be. A feast. Esther herself, the text reveals, confirmed Mordecai's establishment of this new feast. We read of that in the last part of chapter 9, verses 29 through 32, where Esther wrote with all authority to confirm this second letter of Purim. She herself sends out a letter as queen to all of the Jewish communities, confirming the things that Mordecai wrote and reinforcing Mordecai's command That this feast be observed by all the families of the Jews throughout their generations commemorating this deliverance. Esther 9 ends with a new feast day. And now the name which was given to this new feast, the name was Purim. And that name reveals the meaning and the purpose. Of this feast. Celebration. Commemorating. The overturning. Of overwhelming evil. Devised against God's people. We see the reason behind the name. In verse 26 of chapter 9. Wherefore they called these days. That is the 14th and the 15th. The days of the feast. They called these days Purim. After the name Pur. And remember, from chapter 3, verse 7, Pur was the Persian word for a lot. Remember that Haman, in order to determine which was the lucky or most favorable day to enact his plan, the Persians were into astrology. They believed that certain days would be more favorable for taking certain actions depending on the stars and other such superstitious things. Haman had cast poor a lot, and the lot had fallen to the 13th of Adar. And that had been the day on which his extermination campaign would be launched. Poor, poor had been cast. But now the Jews call their feast Purim. And the significance is that Haman's poor had been overturned. The lot cast against them was overturned. And whether it was acknowledged far and wide or not, the reason it was overturned is that the lot cast in the lap is determined by the hand of the unseen king. The whole disposing of it is of the Lord. Not only the lot as it falls, but all of the events that come afterwards. The name Purim points out the central meaning and significance of this feast. The great reversal. It was to celebrate that great reversal that we have seen take place throughout the history of this book. A day of terror. A day of dread. A day of seemingly certain destruction turned to the complete contrary into a day of victory, into a day of rejoicing, into a day of rest. Deliverance. For God's people. That was what Purim was all about. 
Now at this point, there's, there's an interesting question that arises. We see that Purim, this new feast celebrating deliverance, is instituted by two civil magistrates writing letters and establishing it among the Jewish communities of the Persian Empire. Esther the Queen and Mordecai the Prime Minister. The question arises, is: does this make for a lawful feast? Did Mordecai and Esther have authority to establish a feast of this sort? There have been differing opinions here. Some have said no. This is unlawful. Only the Lord can establish a feast among his people. And there is truth to that. We must understand that Purim is a very different feast than those feasts of the Lord that we read about on Thanksgiving Day when we looked at Leviticus 23. Remember in Leviticus 23, we have described for us the seven feasts of the Lord, the Old Testament feast days that God himself instituted for the people of Israel throughout the entire Old Testament dispensation. If Purim was instituted to be in addition to those, it would be unlawful. No man may add to what God has instituted. But Purim is something different. It's not intended to be an addition to those feasts of the Lord, Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, Pentecost, atonement, tabernacles. But what Purim is, is a feast arising and in response to a mighty act of God's deliverance. And that's not wrong. How fitting. How fitting that a public feast celebrating and remembering this mighty act of deliverance should be instituted among God's people. That's what Purim was. Even though many of the Jews throughout the Persian Empire didn't give the praise and the glory to God, others did. God's people did. You can imagine what the streets in Jerusalem must have been like after that day of deliverance. What celebration. And you can imagine the eagerness for that practice to be continued when Esther and Mordecai's letters came to the Jews dwelling in Jerusalem. Purim represents the grateful response of God's people to deliverance. A spontaneous response that erupts from the experience of that deliverance. So great was this deliverance that it deserved to be celebrated and to be commemorated by the Jews everywhere, throughout the provinces, throughout their generations, from year to year. This, this was worth an empire-wide letter. Celebration of deliverance. And you see that throughout the Old Testament. What was the first thing Noah and his family did? When they got off the ark, having been delivered through the flood, built an altar, and they offered a sacrifice, and they gave thanks and praise to God. What was the first thing the children of Israel did after The water walls of the Red Sea had fallen upon Pharaoh and his host. 
And they now began their way into the wilderness. Exodus 15 says they sang. They sang a song of thanksgiving. A song of celebration of their deliverance. What did the judge Deborah do? After God through her delivered Israel from Jabin and Sisera. She led Israel in song, in celebration of praise. That's what Purim is. It's the response of joy to mighty deliverance. What a beautiful end to this book. What a wonder. Seeing how God, the unseen king, has brought things full circle. How through his work, often quietly, often in the night, often unseen, how God worked in this mighty Persian empire in the court of its mighty wicked king to bring us from that grandiose display of Ahasuerus' majesty in chapter 1 to the joyful feasting of the Jews in chapter 9. God's work. But now let's apply it a moment. The establishment of the Feast of Purim teaches us one very important lesson. Celebrate. Celebrate. That's the proper good response that we as God's people ought to have towards our God for his mighty acts of deliverance and all that he does for us. The proper response of God's people to all of the operations of the hand of our unseen king should be what we see in Purim. Celebration, joyful celebration. Celebrate his acts of deliverance. Celebrate God's reversal of our lot. For he has overturned the poor that was cast against us as well. Start just with the book of Esther and the history that we have studied over the course of several Sundays. As we come to the end of our series on this book, we have reason to celebrate. To celebrate what we have seen in this book. This book is the history of our deliverance. Not just the deliverance of some Jews who lived thousands of years ago. But our deliverance. For we are one people. With those who were delivered by the mighty hand of God in this history. The text speaks about how the feast of Purim in verse 27, was ordained and taken upon the Jews and upon their seed and upon all those joined to them. We are among those joined to the true spiritual church of the Old Testament. We are one body with God's people throughout the ages. This is our history. This is the history of our deliverance. Because Haman was thwarted and hung, You and I are sitting here tonight. If Haman had won, we would not be here. The history contained in the book of of Esther and the work of the unseen king revealed herein. His turning the plot of Haman to the contrary. This is why we know God. If that plot had succeeded, 
the line of Christ would have ended. The church would have been destroyed. The gospel would never have come to the Gentiles. You and I would not be here. We would not have the New Testament in our Bibles. There would not have been a Virgin Mary for the angel Gabriel to appear to, to announce the coming fulfillment of the promise. There would not be a Christ. Every link in covenant history is the history of God's deliverance of us. And so as we have seen God's work in the book of Esther, as we have seen his mighty acts in time past, let us celebrate. Let us rejoice. Even as we approach the time of year when we especially commemorate the coming of the Prince of Peace, the birth of our Savior, let's see the connection of the book of Esther to the Christmas story that soon we will think about and rejoice in again. Without Esther, there would not be the Gospel of Matthew or the Gospel of Luke. But the book of Esther is a chain link in that golden chain of God's works throughout covenant history leading to the fulfillment of His promise to send the Christ to accomplish the complete deliverance of God's people. Let us celebrate. Now we turn our minds to Christ. How much of a reason we have to celebrate. Purim was a great celebration of great deliverance. But you and I, standing so many years later in covenant history, how much more of a reason do we have to celebrate? We have Christ's finished work. We have the cross. We have the empty tomb. We have these things not only in pictures, but they are realities that have been accomplished. We have the Spirit poured out Upon us, that fills us and dwells in us and sanctifies us. Christ has accomplished that greatest of reversals, the salvation of sinners. He has not merely overturned an Agagite's plot, but he has overturned the plot and the plan of Satan and decisively crushed that serpent's head. He has turned the curse, the curse of God's law to the contrary, by going to the gallows for us. That we might be filled with his blessings. Christ. Christ in his cross. Christ in his empty tomb. Has turned. Our every single day. From a day of sorrow. To a day of joy. Celebrate. Celebrate God's people. Think about that personally. Purim. The lot. What was our lot? Our lot was ruin, misery, destruction, perishing as sinners. Far worse than the killing and the slaying and the destruction that Haman's decree would have unleashed upon the Jews. That was our lot. But God reversed the poor. Now, Think about what the words of Psalm 16 verses 5 and 6 mean for us in light of what Christ has done. The Lord is the portion of mine inheritance and of my cup. Thou maintainest my lot. The lines are fallen unto me in pleasant places. Yea, I have a goodly heritage in Jesus Christ. We don't celebrate Purim anymore. The spirit of Purim is as proper now as ever. Let us have a Purim spirit in response to God's mighty acts of deliverance 
celebrate his reversal of our lot. Apply it personally again. Can you think concrete acts of deliverance that God has done for you, for your family, for someone you love? How he held up your faith in a very trying time. How he gave you the strength to endure and to persevere through an affliction. How he sought you and brought you back when you wandered in sin. How he comforts you with his word and with his spirit. All of those acts of deliverance, that's what they are that come to us because of the finished deliverance that Jesus has wrought for us? Celebrate. Celebrate. Jehovah, our Savior. That's Purim. That's its establishment. That's what it is. That's how it applies to us. But now let's look at its celebration a little deeper and now focus on how Purim was celebrated. The how. The text in chapter 9, the rest of chapter 9, as it describes the institution of Purim among the Jewish communities of the Persian Empire, it also describes how this feast was celebrated, the manner in which the Jews observed this feast. And as we look through the rest of chapter 9, we can identify Four main parts of the celebration of Purim that are worth our while looking at and applying to ourselves. First, this feast was a feast of remembrance. Remembering. Remembering deliverance accomplished despite seemingly impossible odds. That's Esther 9, verse 28. And that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation, every family, every province, and every city, and that these days of Purim should not fail among the Jews, nor the memorial of them perish from their seed. They should be remembered, and they should be a memorial that perishes not. From among the seed of the Jews. It was a feast of remembrance. And the idea of remembrance is much richer than merely bringing something back to mind. The idea is intentionally preserving the memory and the significance of an event. In the collective memory of the community. So that that significance. And its application. And the experience of it is never lost. And so that that event continues to live on in the consciousness of the Jewish community so that it is passed down from generation to generation a perpetual memorial. That's what Purim was meant to be. Israel did that in the past. Think of one example. After Joshua led the people of Israel over the Jordan River, They took from the riverbed of Jordan 12 stones and they set those stones up on the other side of Jordan as a memorial, 
So that when the children of future generations asked their parents, what's the meaning of these stones? The parents would recount to their children the mighty acts of deliverance that God had performed for them in Egypt, through the wilderness, and at this very river Jordan, when God caused the waters to part, and he delivered us through those waters across into Canaan. A memorial which served the purpose of keeping that memory alive in the community so that its significance was not lost and it continued to have an impact on the way the people lived in the present. That's what Purim was to be. A memorial, a perpetual memorial, a yearly remembrance to keep the memory of this deliverance fresh in the minds of God's people. A memorial. How quickly we forget. Isn't that human nature? Something happens. Even a great event. But then life keeps happening. We go on. We get busy. And even the most significant events easily fade from our minds. So that they don't have much impact on us anymore. And that is what this remembrance was meant to counteract. Purim was a feast of remembrance. Second, Purim was celebrated with rejoicing. And this is the obvious one, is it not? Esther 9 verse 22 depicts Purim as days of feasting and joy. And verse 19 calls it a day of gladness and feasting and a good day. Remembering that mighty act of deliverance leads to joy and rejoicing. A blessed commemoration. Of salvation from evil. That's what Purim was. The people were to get together. They were to assemble together. Families gathered to eat and to drink. To have fellowship. To laugh. To enjoy the good gifts of God with each other. There was personal, family, communal rejoicing. That's what Purim was. A feast of rejoicing. And that was good. That was proper. Remembering. Rejoicing. On account Of that deliverance remembered. And third. Resting. Verse 22. As the days wherein the Jews rested from their enemies. That also was commemorated and celebrated. The rest that the Jews were given from their enemies. That sought their destruction. Rest. Which brings peace. Relief. Freedom from peace. Fear, security. And thus part of the celebration of Purim was that the Jews on those days of Purim would set aside their daily work so that they could devote themselves to remembering, to rejoicing, to resting. And fourth and finally, thanksgiving. Verse 22 ends, And of sending portions one to another, And gifts to the poor. Purim was celebrated by giving of gifts. The the Jews would send portions to one another. And that refers especially to gifts of food. There were special foods that were eaten on these feast days. As the feast days developed through history after this point. But already at the beginning. Gifts of food were exchanged among the Jews. As well as other gifts. And the point of this 
is that it was an expression of thankfulness as they remembered that act of deliverance, as they rejoiced in it, as they enjoyed the rest that was the result of that deliverance. The overflow of the heart ought to be thankfulness. And one of the ways that thankfulness is shown is generosity and deeds of kindness to others, particularly the the poor and the downtrodden. And so the, the text mentions that as well, that gifts were given to the poor among the communities of the Jews throughout the empire. And when we put these four things together, remembering, rejoicing, resting, thanksgiving, we see what celebration, true celebration looks like. And thus, the way the Jews celebrated Purim, in response to the mighty deliverance they received from Haman and his plot, that gives us rich instruction concerning all of our celebration. The application at the end of the first point. Celebrate in response to God's acts of deliverance for us in Christ. This is how. This is what godly spiritual celebration looks like. Remembering. Remembering. Calling to mind. And meditating upon. The wonders of God Wrought for us in Jesus Christ. Is there anything more worthy of perpetual remembrance and continuing memorial than the work of Christ on the cross? And his empty tomb. And his deliverance of us from sin and from death and from all of our spiritual enemies. And his obtaining for us everlasting life and an inheritance and a place in God's own house. Nothing is to be remembered more. Than this. Nothing is to be made mention more often and more joyfully than this. Christ and his deliverance. You notice how the text emphasizes the zeal with which the Jews maintained their remembrance. Their deliverance in the Feast of Purim. Verse 27. And the Jews ordained and took upon them and upon their seed and upon all such as joined themselves unto them. So as it should not fail that they would keep these two days according to their writing. According to their appointed time every year. They were determined not to forget. Let that be our determination. In all of our life as well. Not to let the memory perish. What Christ has done. Not that we forget and don't know about it anymore. But let it not be that we go about our daily lives barely thinking of Christ and what he has done. Let us remember. And of all the things that we impart to our children. Of all of the things that we want not to perish among our seed and in our generations. Let it be this. The account of Jesus Christ and what he has done. And God's mighty acts of deliverance. Those are the things that we celebrate personally. And remember personally. And celebrate in our homes. Let them be. Christ, his birth, his death, his empty tomb. What he has done for our souls. Remember. Remember and rejoice, as the Apostle says, rejoice in the Lord 
always. Again, I say rejoice. The Christian life is a joyful life because it is a life lived under the shadow of the cross and lived in light of the empty tomb. It is a life lived by the power of the Spirit. It is a life imbued with new hope of the coming Christ and the eternal kingdom and all the good and the joy of that kingdom which will be ours on the day of Christ. Rejoice in Christ who has turned our mourning into joy and has given us a joy that lifts the heart even in those times when we mourn. Rest. Rest in Christ. In His deliverance, His finished work. We look again at the cross and the empty tomb and there we see it is finished my sins paid for on that cross the curse due to me taken away death which was the penalty I deserved overcome conquered and destroyed Christ gives rest rest and relief rest from fear from fear of condemnation From fear of death. Rest from trying to work my way into heaven. Something I can never do and will never succeed at. Rest and peace. True peace. And give thanks. Thanks for Christ. The unspeakable gift of God to us. It's a big part of the joy of the Christian life. Is that we now have the privilege of living a lifelong celebration of what God has done for us. A lifelong thanksgiving rendered unto Him in the service of our hands, in the words of our mouths, in all that we say and do, consecrating ourselves as living sacrifices of thanksgiving to Him. That's a joyful business. That's celebration. Thanks, Lord, for Christ. Following the pattern of Purim, we show that thanks not only vertically, but horizontally. And in fact, that's part of how we show our thanks vertically to God. By giving to one another. By ministering to one another. Caring for the poor, the downtrodden, the different, the weak in our own midst. The poor we will always have with us. That's God's intention. They're there for us to minister to. That we might show our thanks to God. We who have been delivered. The overflow of the joy of deliverance. is ministering to one another. Helping one another in our needs. That is the celebration life of God's people. And so let us have a Purim spirit. Remembering. Rejoicing, resting, giving thanks. One more application in this regard. The Lord has given us a feast day. A feast day especially on which we remember, rejoice, rest, and give thanks. And it's not an annual feast like Purim. It's not one of the Old Testament feasts that is fulfilled in Christ. But it's the Sabbath day. The Sabbath day is our day of celebration. And thanks be to God, it comes every week. 
What a wonderful thing that is, the weekly Sabbath. For the Sabbath is the celebration of deliverance accomplished. It is the celebration of the cross and the empty tomb. Why is the New Testament Sabbath on Sunday, the first day of the week? Because that was the day of our Lord's resurrection. When our Lord Jesus, having finished his work, entered into his rest. Bringing rest and joy to all of his people. He was crucified and slain. He went down into the darkness of the grave. And it looked, it looked like evil had won the day. It looked like darkness had swallowed up the light of the world. But on that morning of Resurrection Sunday, up from the grave he arose in mighty triumph over his foes and ours. And it was turned to the contrary. There is the great reversal. Poor being overturned. Christ is risen from the grave, bringing life and immortality to light for his people. And that we celebrate every single Sunday, remembering it, rejoicing in it, resting in it, and giving thanks for it. Doesn't that fill Sunday with so much beauty and significance? It's our Purim. It's our celebration. Let it be that for us. So easy. So easy it is to get into that routine. Sunday comes and Sunday goes. We go through the familiar emotions. We come to church. We sit in church. We leave church. We have lunch. We take a nap. We go back to church. We leave church. We go to bed. Next week, work. It can become just a routine. Sunday is our weekly celebration of deliverance. Do our hearts faint for the courts of the Lord? Let us never tire of observing this feast day that the Lord has given us. Let the observance of this feast day be what we take upon ourselves with zeal and take upon our seed with zeal and teach our children to observe because we love it. We love to gather together as God's people and celebrate His deliverance. Let it be that the Sabbath never fails. Among us. But now. We can apply this also. To other celebrations that we have. There are certain celebrations that. We as a Christian community have taken upon ourselves to observe. That are not required by the word of God. And therefore may never be placed on an equal level. With anything God's word requires. Such as the Sabbath. But celebrations like Thanksgiving, which we just had, and Christmas, which we will have before this month is finished. What are these celebrations really about? Why do we do them? Custom? Let it not be. But let us engage in these extra celebrations with this Purim spirit. Why do we do this? Because our hearts overflow with joy, with thankfulness. We want to remember Christ 
and give Him thanks. That's what Thanksgiving, that's what Christmas is all about. It's remembering that God is our provider and He is the giver of all of the good gifts that we have and we give Him thanks. That's what Christmas is for. What it ought to be for. Remembering God's gift of Jesus Christ coming in our flesh to save His people from their sins. Remembering it. Cherishing the memory and the account of that real historical event of our redemption. Rejoicing in all that it means for us. Resting in its significance. And thanking God for that Christ. Let our Christmas be all about Christ. Let it be filled with this Purim spirit. Let all of our gift giving, like the gift giving of the Jews at Purim, have thankfulness. Let it have thankfulness as its motive and goal. Thankfulness for God's unspeakable gift. Let our celebrations be a memorial of that unspeakable gift. But now lastly, to finish up the second point. There's one more thing that's very interesting. You might say surprising. To observe. About Purim. As it's recorded here in Esther 9. God isn't mentioned. Once again, the name of God is nowhere mentioned. Striking. Should not the name of God leap, leap out of the hearts and mouths of the Jews as they commemorate, as they rejoice, as they rest in, and as they give thanks for this deliverance? And yet the name of the Lord is nowhere to be found. Even here in chapter 9. That doesn't mean that there weren't any Jews who rejoiced and gave praise to the Lord. But what it does indicate is that many, and many throughout the Persian Empire, even as they took this feast upon themselves and rejoiced in it, didn't give the glory to God, didn't give the praise to God. It remained a purely horizontal celebration. Let that not be the case with us. If a book were to be written of our life, According all the details, how often would God's name appear in that book? How often would prayers of praise and songs of thanks be rising to God? How often would God's name appear in the book of our lives? Would it look different than the book of Esther? May it look different by the grace of God. So easy it is to live a life God is scarcely mentioned, scarcely on our minds, as so many of these Jews did. But as we have been brought to consider once again the mighty acts of God's deliverance, may the name of God appear on every page of the book of your life and mine. The lasting significance is where we finish. The lasting significance of the Feast of Purim is that it points to something beyond itself. It was a feast commemorating deliverance. But the Feast of Purim itself shows that the deliverance that it commemorates was not the last or the final or the perfect deliverance of God's people. 
And this comes out when we turn now to chapter 10. And we look at what chapter 10 says. It's quite interesting. You read chapter 10 verse 1. And the king Ahasuerus laid a tribute upon the land and upon the isles of the sea. You might wonder, what's the point of that? We go from the celebration of Purim to a report of King Ahasuerus taxing his people. Taxing all of his people throughout his wide empire. And then it talks about his mighty acts and deeds and how they're recorded in the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia. What's the point? The point is this. After the events of Esther, things went back to normal in the Persian Empire. And the normal wasn't that great. King Ahasuerus still sat on the throne. King Ahasuerus still ruled the way he ruled before the events of this book. Here he is, taxing his people. You remember, after Esther was made queen, Ahasuerus gave a tax break to all the people. But apparently that joy and that excitement of having a new queen wore off, and now he's imposing tribute on his people once again. In other words, things really haven't changed in Persia. Ahasuerus, the wicked tyrant, still sits on the throne. And though the Jews were delivered from Haman the Agagite, the man who is equally responsible for the decree to exterminate them still sits on the throne. They haven't been delivered from all of their earthly enemies. And this man who still sits on the throne is ruling as whimsically and as wickedly as ever. And what this impresses upon us then is that the kingdom has not yet come. The events of Esther, though they brought a great deliverance, they are not the final deliverance. God's people still groan under the weight of the wicked of this world and of the powers of darkness. Mordecai, though he is described here in his honor, the great honor to which he was elevated by King Ahasuerus, he's not the Savior. Mordecai, yes, used his position of power to protect and secure the good of his people, and that gained for the Jews in the Persian Empire a measure of peace and security. They had their man in the king's house looking after them, looking out for them. He was next unto the king of Persia. Mordecai spoke peace unto his seed, the text says. But he could not bring lasting peace. He was a mere man who could lose his place in power. He was a man who would fade and die like all of the others. He was a man who could not deliver the Jews from their real enemies. He was a prince, a mighty prince in Persia. But he was not the prince of peace promised by the prophet Isaiah. And thus the whole book of Esther and its concluding celebration of Purim, as joyful and as wonderful as it is, it is marred by imperfection. It's not yet the final deliverance. And that points us forward. It points us forward to look to the coming prince of peace. And that's what this history has been ultimately about, as we have seen. God, the unseen king, working to bring that prince of peace. The book of Esther speaks peace to us now, as it points us to that seed, Jesus Christ. 
When we went through the book, of, the book of Ruth, we noticed how the last word of the book was significant. David. That's what the whole book was driving at. David, the coming king, and ultimately Christ. The seed of David. The last word in the book of Esther. Peace to all his seed. Significant. That seed refers not only to the Jews who would come after Mordecai, not only to us as the spiritual seed of Abraham, but ultimately to Jesus Christ who is the seed. All of the history of Esther has been driving towards this seed who is coming and serving the coming of this seed. And all of the things that the unseen king has done throughout this book serves the coming of that seed. As the Jews celebrated this act of deliverance, they also looked forward to coming deliverance. And as we celebrate deliverance, we look forward to the final deliverance that will come on the day of Christ's second coming. He is coming to speak peace. Final, lasting, complete peace to his people. So beloved, as we end our study of the book of Esther, let us take its lessons with us. All that we have seen the unseen king do. How he rules in all places. How he governs all events throughout the world. Even the smallest details. For the sake of his people. How his hidden hand governs and guides our lives. Down to the smallest details. How his ways are good. Even when we can't understand them. Even when we don't see them. The unseen king. Delivers. And preserves. And he is coming again. When he comes. Every eye shall at last see him. And of the increase of his government. And his peace. There shall be no end. Amen. Faithful God and heavenly father. Bless this word to our hearts. And to all of the truths that we have seen in the book of Esther, that we may trust thee, our King, and thy hand of providence, and thy goodness to us. May we be a people who celebrate, who remember, who rejoice, who rest, give thanks, in and for Christ our Savior. We ask this in his name. Amen.